episode is brought to you by Jing's Mortgage Team. Jing's Mortgage Team is a team of real estate and mortgage professionals whose mission is to help anyone with their real estate needs. If you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, refinance your home, have credit issues, or in need of an investment loan, we can definitely help you. If you're looking for a real estate agent, we know the best of the best real estate agents. Visit the link below for more information. Thank you so much. Uh, you're very welcome, Hamilton. Happy to be here. Uh, I appreciate you coming on our first inaugural, inaugural show <laughs> of Secret Sauce with Hamilton Lau. And we are going to kick off this episode with something that is, I, I feel at least, is really a story that everybody should hear, especially if you're a pilot. Um, I... We'll, we'll dive straight into it. I want to just kind of peel the curtain back a little bit on who you are. You know, we, we really, for this podcast, we really want to get to, you know, the person behind the experience, um, the person behind a situation, what makes a person tick. And I would love to peel behind the curtain and find out more about you. You know, for those of you that don't know, we uh, we have so fortunate and honored to have Brandon on the show. Brandon, in 2018, while flying underage kids, believe it or not, his engine shut off in midair. And you have a situation, you're like 10,000 feet in the air. So right? we, we were actually at 1,000 feet. We 1, were 1, very 000. low to the ground at that point. Holy it, moly. It, you were very low to the ground. 101 things could have happened. It's really a life and death situation at this point. But miraculously, Brandon was able to focus and navigate the situation and land the plane. And I believe... Everybody just suffered minor injuries, but everybody walked away. In fact, we actually had uh, no injuries. No we, injuries. No, no, not, no bruises, <laughs> no scratches, nothing. No holy injuries. Holy So the, the value that I would love to, to give back to the listener is, you know, what, what were you thinking at the time? And, you know, but I would love to, of course, get to know you. Brandon, Brandon Sachs. Sure. So, I mean, how did you grow up? What? So let's take it from the top. Yeah. So uh, I started off, I grew up here uh, on Long Island over in Fort Washington. My parents uh, originally had an apartment in Hoboken. Um, and when they had me, I was their first kid. They decided a little apartment in Hoboken wasn't quite big enough for the three of us now. So they started looking for houses, settled on uh, Fort Washington as their destination of choice. And me, my sister, and my brother all grew up here. We all went to Guggenheim Elementary School, followed by Weber Middle School, then Paul D. Schreiber before we went off to college. I myself uh, went off to Northeastern University up in Boston. And at the time when I was growing up, if you told me I was going to be a pilot, I would have laughed at you. Because <laughs> all through my childhood and adolescence and even early adulthood, I wanted to get into politics. As you know, I ended up working at the UN after my experience at Northeastern, um, and I spent some time there from 2011 to 2015. And towards my final year there, we had a gentleman come and join the team. His name was Fabrice. He was a French guy. 
And when he joined the team, uh, we got to talking and he brought up the fact that he was a private pilot. Well, I've always had this sort of interest in aviation, not necessarily professionally, just personally. Why not learn a little bit more about the process and maybe apply to flight school? So I sat down with this guy and he gave me the PTS, the Practical Test Standards for the Private Pilot Rating. So I went through this with him, looked through the book. I said, you know what? This doesn't seem all that difficult to learn. I'm pretty sure I could do this if I wanted to. So I told the guys at the UN, thank you. I'm going to be leaving at the end of December and I'll be uh, heading off and applying to flight school. I ended up settling on a school at Islip MacArthur Airport. It was called ATP. So should you choose to get your instructor certifications as an instructor and then if they have space, they will hire you to instruct for them. So if you go through the program and you really focus, do what you're supposed to do, uh, learn what you need to learn and put the time in, you'll know a good amount and you'll be comfortable enough to teach your new students when you get to that position. So I got lucky. I had uh, an instructor named uh, John Mezzacapa, who is a wonderful pilot. Um, I was actually his first student. And he was a gentleman that had previously looked into potentially joining the Air Force and going that route, decided, you know, the civilian route was, I guess, more his speed. So as his only student, he had nothing but time to devote to me. I am now instructing at ATP in March of 2017. I last one month and I decide, A, not quite getting the hours I want to get. It was a little slow. And B, there's an airport that's closer to me in Farmingdale. Why don't I go to Republic, see what flight schools are in the area, interview and, you know, see what comes up. So I ended up going to this place, Nassau Flyers. So I teach there, uh, you know, I'm getting a client load and Nassau Flyers' clientele at this time are, you have some private students and then you have the Nassau and Western Suffolk BOCES students. That's the contract for the high school kids. So uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the Long Island school system, BOCES is the Board of Cooperational Educational Services. Mm -hmm. So it's all the school districts uh, kind of pitch into this organization, like an overarching school district. And this is just public schools? Public schools. Wow. Yeah, on Long Island. Yeah, that's not. amazing. And uh, what BOCES will do is they will provide vocational training for students that choose to do vocational training. Wow. Yeah, they will do, uh, you know, special needs kids in a certain area wow. and, you know, different programs they have available. That's beautiful. So the vocational side of it, one of those is the aviation program. Um, so Nassau BOCES and Western Suffolk BOCES would take the kids from the various Nassau and Western Suffolk school districts that wanted to participate in the aviation program. For half the day, they would go to school uh, normally, and for the other half of the day, they would do the aviation-focused stuff. And uh, fast forward a year later, it's now January 2018, I've been instructing at Nassau Flyers for, let's say, a year. Those of you that look at the news stories, you'll know that up front with me is a gentleman, Mike Pastore, and the back is one of our female students. These particular students that I was flying with that day uh, were relatively new. This was both of their third ever lesson in an airplane. So they, wow. were, they were relatively new. So in this case, I was flying a Cessna with the tail number 294 Mike Echo. Wow. So that was the, uh, the end number, so to speak. So okay. every, every plane in the U.S. starts with an N in November, so we call it N numbers. 
we just disregard that and give you the rest of it. So I was November 294 Mike Echo. And uh, we basically went up there. Uh, we had a full lesson. So I'd gone up, uh, we'd, we'd practiced, like I said, steep turns, slow flight stalls. We had done our ground reference maneuvers. And uh, we had, so for you guys, there are two practice areas over Long Island. There's one practice area over the South Shore, or Fire Island, and one practice area over the North Shore, the Northport Stacks. So in this uh, particular training scenario, we were over the South practice area over Fire Island, where you basically just fly back and forth along the beach from the Captree Bridge, uh, go about five or six miles down the beach you can head to before you kind of want to turn around and stay in that area. Okay. And you don't really want to be more than a mile and a half or two miles off the beach just because, let's say an engine does fail, <laughs> you typically have one mile per thousand feet of glide distance. Right. And what we teach is that in the event you have to put the plane down, A, you want to be able to make your touchdown point so you don't want to you don't want to be too far out for the altitude you're flying at. So since we're typically flying between two to 3,000 feet in the practice area, unless we're down low for ground reference or something else, you know, we don't want to be more than that two to three miles uh, off the shoreline right. so we can make it and get not back in. Not for bid, right? Mm -hmm. right. So, uh, you know, we, we had our full lesson. It was about an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 20 minutes right around there. We were starting to head back in because each uh, kid with the program has uh, two hours in the air. Now that two hours includes doing your walk around of the plane, doing your run up to check everything out before the flight to make sure it works, taxiing, waiting to take off. So to get an hour and 20 minutes in the air is a, is a good day, typically, right. especially at Republic Airport. Okay. Yeah. And, and the weather was normal? Weather was, was good, normal, yeah. Normal so day. it was uh, middle of January, cold, obviously, okay. and uh, clear. So it was, it was a good VFR day. Uh, so as we're coming back in uh, and we're heading towards the Captree Bridge to report into ATC at Republic Airport that we're you know, over the Captree Bridge coming in for a landing with whatever the ATIS information was at that point, um, Mike, the student, asked, hey, before we head back in, do you mind if we run through an emergency procedure just so I can practice it in the plane? So you were about to... So we were, we, were, we were at the, we were at the end of the lesson. Yeah. We were at the very end of the lesson. So you were pretty much at the very end of the lesson. Thinking about, hey, you know, I'm about to drive home, grab some dinner or something like that, right? And then it's like, Get okay. some lunch, yeah. Oh, lunch. And then he's like, hey, you know, let's, let's do one more drill. Yeah, so he's, he, won, oh, he was, in, and he's very into aviation. Okay. I, believe, I believe he's actually yeah. going on to get his uh, rating Good for him. after that. Um, but he wanted to practice uh an emergency procedure. So I said, sure, you have your checklist on you. He said, yes. So I'm like, okay. What you typically do is, as the instructor, you'll have them, you'll, you'll take the throttle, bring it to idle. So you idle it to simulate an engine out. You say, okay, run through your procedure. So he runs through his checklist. He does his flow. It's called a flow. And then towards the end, I'm like, all right, good job. Go ahead and recover. So then he goes to push the throttle back in. And as he goes to push the throttle back in, you hear the engine rev up. As soon as it gets past 1,800 RPMs, it revs right back down to idle, even though he was pushing the throttle further in at that point. Right, it should have been it at should, this point, yeah. you know, revving normally. Right, so your, your throttle, uh, think of it as a car just with cruise control. So you set it and it stays there. It's a stick on a Cessna. So it's a push-pull stick. So wherever you push it to is where it should be. So 
for him, he was pushing it in and it was revving up. And then once it got past that 1800 point, it would just rev back down, even though he's pushing it further in, which is not typical. That's, that's a problem. Right. So um, he looks at me, he goes, hey, I think there's an issue. Uh, the engine's not coming back. And I said, well, why don't you run through that process one more time for me? <laughs> so, and I'm sure the other student was yeah. just like, yeah, it's just a walk, another day in the park. Well, she, she was in the back seat. She, uh, she, was, she, she, she was, you know, she's attentive as well. Okay. Uh, at this point, they didn't realize that anything was really wrong right. yet. They were just like, okay, well, Michael, pull it back to idle, run through his procedure and push it back in again. So that's what he did. He ran through his flow, pushed the throttle back in, did the same thing. It revved up and then revved out as soon as it got back in all the way. So at that point, I'm like, okay, my controls. It's the second time now, yeah. and it's just, yep. this, is, this is serious. And then as an instructor, when you say my controls, that they know there's something going on, because that means you're taking over the airplane. As soon as the, your instructor says my controls, that means your hands and feet leave the control surfaces, and the instructor has commanded that aircraft. What was going through your mind at that point? Well, at that point, I'm like, well, now I have to figure out what's going on. So I'm like, let me run through these procedures. So uh, I did the same thing. I got that throttle back down, ran through the whole procedure, pushed it in, and it was not going up. I'm like, okay, there's something wrong with this engine right now. So I look at them, I say, look guys, we already lined up on the beach, because as part of his emergency procedure, you pick a, a landing spot. And just so happened we were over the Captree Bridge area, Robert Moses Field too. So I'm like, you already have us lined up perfectly. We're just gonna do it for real now. So I got on the radio. Uh, at that point, I was talking to uh, New York Approach over at Islip. So I said, New York Approach, Cessna 294 Mike Echo, engine failure over the Captree Bridge. And the controller at that point uh, came back to me. And I mean, you could tell that caught her a little off guard. <laughs> sure, <laughs> caught her right? a little off guard. Nobody expects so, for something like this to be happening. Yeah, so typically in an emergency with a, you know, a mechanical failure like that, there's a discrete squawk code. So you have a transponder and you would type 7700, 7700. So everybody know you're experiencing mechanical failure. Um, she uh, assigned me a discrete squawk code, which I typed in while I was going through my procedures. Uh, and then she asked me if I was able to maintain altitude. I said, unable. Uh, cannot maintain altitude, we'll be putting it down on the beach. Uh, so unable in aviation is what you say when you cannot comply or cannot do something, and that just lets the controllers know, okay, you can't do it, and they won't ask you to do it again because you've said unable. Sure. Um, well, how are the kids at, at this point? So at this point, they had both clammed up. So they, as soon as I took over and I actually declared the emergency over the radio, uh, they knew it was real, so both their hands were on their knees, and they're just sitting like bored. Did they, did they seem like they were nervous? Uh, you could you could tell they they were dialed in, and they right. they knew that it was it was a, a real situation now, as opposed to a practice situation. Right, yeah. So uh, we end up lining up on the beach. It was a significant crosswind because unfortunately uh, you don't get to choose the heading you're landing on when it's only a one direction beach. So we were. So when you say lined up, meaning you're parallel to like the shoreline. Yes. So we were. So pretend the the sand is the runway. We're just coming down to land right. on the sand. Um, so and like and, and mind you, mind you, this whole thing happened, and we were at a thousand feet. So as part of your emergency procedure, you know, you're identifying a place to land. So you have the throttle at idle. You tell the student, okay, where are you going to land? So they, you line this up on the beach, and then when you say recover, that's when they're supposed to put the throttle back in and then recover to altitude. So we're at that 1,000 feet where I told him to recover. didn't work, so that he ran through it again. still didn't work. That's when I did it. So this whole process happened at that 1,000-foot point, and we're okay. still coming down. Right. So this is, uh, I want to say we had about 
30 to 40 seconds from when I made the radio call to when we were actually on the ground. It's 100 minutes. What was going through your mind during the entire process? So for me, I was just following my flows and the emergency procedures. Uh, this is something you train for, I mean, literally thousands of times over the course of your, uh, your, your career. I mean, you practice emergencies regularly, really? uh, all the time, especially as an instructor. Um, it's, it's a big part of having the capability to teach someone is dealing with uh, scenarios that may arise in flight. Um, in so, fact, to, to get your instructor rating, one of the final maneuvers you have to demonstrate is a spin and recovery. So let's say you were up there and the student inadvertently put your aircraft into a spin. You have to demonstrate that you can, A, not only identify it, but then get out of it and recover from it. Right. And uh, that's, uh, that's an aerobatic maneuver. So that's, that's to become a CFI, you must demonstrate that. Wow. So at this point, it was just autopilot in your brain. Right. So at this point, just I'm just going through my flows. All um, practice, all the you know, visualization. This yeah. is at this point, I'm just like, all right, what do we have to do? What do we, I'm getting my... So in the, uh, in the Cessna, when you're an instructor, your flow is up and to the left because you're in the right seat. So I do my flows up and to the left, get everything in the positions that need to be in, like switches, fuel selectors, gauges, all that stuff. Um, and the plane is configured to come down, something that uh, is on the checklist that a lot of people you know, may not realize in a Cessna is to pop the doors before you touch down for a hard landing because you don't want the doors to get stuck uh, in case it gets dented on the way down. So you actually do undo the latch just before uh, you, know, you touch down. Uh, so we had the doors popped. We're coming down. As we're coming down, there happened to be a gentleman on the beach. Oh, walking my his God. Dog. So this gentleman was walking his dog. So you're ready to land at this point. And we're, we're, we're at our, the airspeed that I want to be at right. at this point, coming down um, 68 knots. And we're getting ready to do a soft field landing. And this guy was kind of in the way. So <laughs> what, I didn't want to kill him. So, so what I ended up doing is I actually ended up holding the nose off oh, and, and bleeding, bleeding a little bit more airspeed. Well, yeah, I have to because, you know, you can't put it on the guy. Right. We're not going to put it in the water because we have fixed gear. And with tricycle gear, with fixed gear, if you touch down, as soon as your wheels break the surface of the water, think of it like a, a wheelbarrow where the front wheel is going to dig in and it's just going to pick you up and start spinning you over. So you don't want to do that with speed. You want to do that as slow Especially as with possible. Water, right? Especially with water. Oh my God. So that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and we had the whole beach. It was clear. It was oh cold in the God. middle of January. It was just this gentleman. So we hold it off. We get over him. We come down. We actually do have a ground roll. We rolled for, uh, I want to say, uh, seven to 800 feet. You know, decent rollout. Uh, since it was a, a significant crosswind, we did a crosswind landing where you touch down. We touch down with the right main gear first and the left main gear, and then you hold the nose off as long as you can until there's not enough airspeed to keep it up and the nose wheel will settle down. Unfortunately, uh, the sand was wet and compact where we landed, but as we were taxiing straight, the beach curves. So because the beach curves, we went from the compact wet sand towards the dry sand, which is much more loose. So by the time the nose wheel came down, it was in that dry sand part started to build up in front of that nose wheel. And at this point, we're not going very quick. We're at maybe 13, 14 knots, so relatively wow. slow. Okay. But we still had just enough momentum that the nose wheel dug in, the aircraft lifted up, and we were kind of pointing nose down. So we weren't on the wings yet. We were just pointing down. There was just enough wind that we sat there for a little bit, and then it 
blew us over the rest of the way onto the wings. <laughs> so, so essentially, uh, you're, you went like backflip type of thing. Yeah, it was, it was a slow flip. It was more oh, like oh. the nose wheel settled down. We were up like this, and then we slowly went like that at the end. And I looked over at the kids. I said, hey, are you guys okay? They said, yes. I'm like, well, we're upside down, so watch your heads when you unbuckle. <laughs> <laughs> so we unbuckled, and we went out the doors. When both the kids were out with me, they looked at me. They both started laughing. They had smiles, and they were like, this was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman that was walking his dog came over, and he, uh, he goes, oh, I didn't realize you guys were having an emergency. I thought you guys were just messing with me. You were going to buzz me or something. And I said, unfortunately, sir, no, this was an emergency. I'm like, but how typical is it that you have people buzz you on the beach here? He's like, usually it doesn't happen. I'm like, just out of, uh, out of common courtesy, you know, <laughs> next time a plane's coming at you on the beach real low <laughs> like that, you, you may want to get out of the way. <laughs> so I, I phrased it, you know, politically, just of like. Of course, <laughs> of course. Because at this point, I'd already had five years at the UN under my belt, so I'm, you know, diplomatic about it. Of course. Now, uh, that is a state park, Robert Moses Field, too. So at this point, you had a, uh, an employee of the park come over. I don't know if they were a wildlife or environmental officer or something like that. Uh, then you had the state troopers had, had come relatively quickly, had cordoned off the whole area of the crime scene. And I guess because the, uh, they radioed it, or, or not sure how they communicated it, but the media had found out, I guess, shortly thereafter. So I get on the phone with the operator of the flight school. I let him know, hey, we're at Robert Moses Field 2. plane just flipped. Uh, there are state police here. They said the media's on the way, too. So the owner of the flight school comes over. Uh, he's with me. The FAA uh, found out, I guess, the same way everyone else did very quickly. So, I mean, the FAA had inspectors there. I think there were, there were a handful of them. I want to say four or five FAA inspectors within about 30 minutes. So they all got there relatively yeah. quick. It was a whole thing. And the inspectors themselves were, were kind of curious. Like, a, they'd never seen this before. And B, they were interested to see how the tow truck was going to flip the plane over. Right. So we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, I get out of the plane with these kids and the adrenaline kicks in. So that's when we're down on the ground and my hands start to get a little jittery. I'm like, oh, that just happened. Like that, that really, we just survived the plane crash. And that's when it started to kick in a little bit. But, uh, you know, the owner of the flight school didn't want the, the branding on the shirts and the jackets that we had to be visible. So we had to change it to this hoodie he had in his uh, car sure. to cover everything up. Uh, the police were there, obviously, so they weren't letting anyone into the area. Um, the kids, because they were both underage, they're both under 18, uh, they automatically had to get transported to the hospital just because you know, they're minors uh, where they had no injuries and they went back to class uh, shortly thereafter. Um, both of those kids I've flown with multiple times after that incident happened. Wow. Uh, their parents actually reached out to me. The, the father of the daughter reached out to me to thank me, and then the uh, father of the son reached out to me to uh, thank me as well. He actually came to the firehouse while I was there one night. And, uh, He's your volunteer firefighter yeah, as well, right? And he shook my hand. He just wanted to say hello. But uh, anyway, so we're there. The kids get transported. I'm with the owner of the flight school. The news media is there. And basically myself and an FAA inspector um, and he's basically just having me recount the process everything that happened 
walk him through it, kind of show him, you know, everything uh, on the ground, walk him through everything we did in the air. And he asked me to do this multiple times, just, you know, make sure he gets the whole picture. Then he goes, they break. I go back to the uh, car with Don. Don's the owner of the flight school. I'm waiting in there. The FAA guys go talk to the kids while they're at the hospital, get their recounting of the stories. Um, the tow truck ends up coming. So Don had called the towing company. And I guess he had told them that, you know, we needed a tow truck for a plane. I don't know if the person at the other end of the phone quite understood that. So they sent like a regular like tow truck, you know, for a Cessna. <laughs> <laughs> It's upside down at the beach. <laughs> this tow truck driver shows up, and uh, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. So he, <laughs> he attaches a winch around the tail, and he basically just tries to prop the plane back over the same kind of way we went over, just in reverse. He ends up bending the tail a little oh, while he's trying to pull it back over. He gets the Cessna stuck with his truck. He ends up burying his wheels in. Now the truck is... So the now, tow the, now the tow truck is stuck. <laughs> oh, boy. So uh, he ends up calling a flatbed. The flatbed comes and removes his truck and then removes the Cessna as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how they got it back to uh, Republic Airport at Nassau Flyers. Oh, boy. Um, at this point, I'm back at the airfield, and uh, the inspector, after having gotten my accounting and the students' accounting and seeing that they're all exactly the same, says, all right, can you type up the statement for me? So then I just go sit down at one of the computers there, I type the statement out, give it to him, and then uh, that's basically the end of that right there. Then they did their preliminary investigations. You know, that's when he privately, had, before they did that, that's when he privately had told me, he's like, hey, good job. He's like, you know, no injuries, no property damage. That's exactly what you want. Um, he said he thinks it could have been a fly valve that got stuck, wasn't really sure. Uh, ultimately, wasn't determined what the cause of. If you look up the NTSB report, it's an undetermined cause. I want to dive into what was going into through your mind during this whole incident while it was happening. You know, emotionally, were you scared? Was there any emotions that was going through? You know, you know what what were you leaning towards, if anything, that you leaned on? Was it faith? Was it faith in a higher power, or was it faith in you know your training? What were you? What was going through your mind during this process? So, during the, uh, the routine parts of the flight, it was just you know your typical training flight, nothing out of the ordinary. Once the emergency actually happened and I was going through the process, because there was such a short time to get everything done, uh, I mean, this all happened in the span of about 30 to 40 seconds between uh, me declaring the emergency and we were probably at around eight or 900 feet, you know, pretty much right over the ground at this point. To actually getting it done, the only thing I had time to even focus on was making sure I got my checklist and my flows done, getting the airplane in the proper configuration for this landing, and then uh, identifying that there was a person on the beach and saying, okay, I have to get over this guy. By the time all that was done, we were already down. So it's, it's, uh, it's really once we were on the ground and out of the plane that you have time to process. And that, that's when the adrenaline did kick in. So I, that's when I... I felt the jitters, so to speak, and started to have the slight shakiness in the hand uh, after the fact. And, and I will say that, you know, there, there was definitely uh, an adrenaline high that lasted for a significant period of time, because even when I was talking to the inspectors afterward, uh, I could, you know, I, could, I was amped up. I, I wasn't at my normal baseline, you know, calm level. 
And I want to say that lasted for a couple of like, hours, like an hour or two almost, before I got back to my baseline normal level. Um, and while thinking about it all, it is definitely all training and preparation and uh, the people that have helped you get to that point. So the FAA has a very strict set of training requirements um, of which you practice these emergency procedures. In fact, you have to demonstrate emergency procedures to examiners before you can get your various lot, ratings. Right? You do this stuff a lot. You know, this it's not unheard of to have uh, you know loss of life in general aviation, but uh, it's it is unfortunate. It is it is a part of GA, but it's an unfortunate part. And uh, the reason for that is because the statistics everybody likes to quote when they state that aviation is the safest method of transportation and you're not likely to have anything happen. That is true at the Part 121 uh, level, the airline level. So that's the regulation they operate under. If you are flying on an airline, it is the safest mode of transportation. There is almost a 0% chance that you're going to have something happen to you. With GA, uh, it is in fact more dangerous than driving. So driving your car is safer than flying a statistically flying a GA small aircraft. Um, there are ways to mitigate those factors. Uh, training, um, limiting your desire to show off or you know uh, sure. take people up in conditions that you shouldn't. Uh, that's that's how. Kennedy Jr. got himself into trouble. He was a VFR pilot and he was right. flying in instrument conditions and unfortunately he did not make it. Right, right, right. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately uh, pilots go up and they're like, oh, it's, I can make it. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not too hard risk. to do this. Yeah, like ri unnecessary risk, risk management. Right, unnecessary Ri risks that are taken will greatly in yeah. increase your well, chance. That's part, that's part of the training, risk management. We have, uh, we have different checklists, like, you know, they have acronyms for all this, like the I'm safe checklist, the PAVE checklist, different things to get into, you know, your right. risk-taking ability, your willingness to take risks, your mental state, evaluating yourself, your fatigue. Fatigue is a big one in aviation. Right. But to circle back to your question about what I was going through uh, in the moment, um, it really was, it just boiled down to, this is what I was taught to do, this is how I was taught to do it, and that's what I did. And uh, you don't really have time to think uh, when it's happening in such a short time span. Had we had more altitude, yeah, then you could sit there and you could, you know, maybe process and think a little more. Right. But when, when you're really dealing with seconds, it was under a minute, we were dealing with, uh, you know, a matter of seconds, you just have to act. And if you've been trained correctly, you'll act correctly. If you uh, have not stayed up to date on your training or your training was uh, less than adequate, then you know you could get yourself into trouble uh, that way too. So I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that not only was I extremely current because I've been flying regularly, like daily, multiple flights a day at this point, uh, but my training was good too. The guys that have taught me what to do taught me Correctly. And you're constantly running through scenarios at all times, you know, you're always prepared for the work. Well, the nature of being an instructor is uh, you're taking these people up regularly and you're pretty much always practicing uh, these maneuvers and these 
emergency procedures. So this is something that I had gone through with students hundreds of times at this point. I've been instructing for about a Not year. Thousands. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so at this point, I mean, it's like, it was almost an everyday thing. Multiple times a day, you'd be practicing either one sort of emergency or another, or doing maneuvers. So uh, when you're doing it daily, multiple times a day, uh, you get proficient at it, so to speak. Um, where pilots tend to get themselves in trouble is if they, let's say they fly once or twice a month, if that, you're not going to have the same level of proficiency as somebody who's flying every day or multiple times a day, you which is doing. at that point what I was doing. So, um, you know, the, the nature of the volume of flying that I was doing combined with the nature of the flying, the instructional aspect meant that I was, uh, very comfortable in the situation, to say the least. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a great way to put it, my friend. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, it was just the thought, I guess, never even occurred, the thought that you weren't going to make it just because. So I will say, when the nose wheel started to dig in, I knew we were going to flip. So I did look over at the kids, and I said, oh, here we go. And they both looked and said, what do you mean? And then we nosed down. I'm like, that's what it <laughs> I said, just like, oh, here we go. As soon as the nose wheel started to go down. And uh, they got a kick out of that. They were like, oh, you knew that was going to happen. I'm like, yeah, you could feel the nose wheel starting to sink in. So that's, that's the next step. If the nose wheel is sinking in, you're going to flip. <laughs> Did your perspective on life change after something like this happened? You know what? As a matter of fact, I think it did. And... And uh, if you talk to a lot of the guys that knew me at the firehouse at that time, or um, even you know guys that knew me back earlier in life, um, I don't think I was as assertive or as willing to uh, go out and just do stuff uh, as I am now. And one of the reasons for that is I looked at it as I could have not made it past today, you know, if things didn't go this way. That would have been all she wrote at, uh, let's see, at that point, 26 years old for me. Wow. So when you have that sort of experience, and this, uh, mind you, is not the first time I've had an experience where I was like, ha, huh, I may not make it. I actually have, uh, the FAA knows I have a special issuance medical for something called ulcerative colitis. So I got diagnosed in 2014 uh, when I was my senior year in Northeastern, and uh, I didn't realize that I was losing blood. <laughs> so I was in an elevator to go down. My eyes went to pinpoints. I ended up in the hospital getting blood bags and everything for a while. And uh, that was the first time where I was like, I almost didn't make it. Like wow. the doctors were like, hmm, you're missing almost 52% of your blood volume. Jesus. So it was uh, luckily for me, they caught it and I'm getting treated for that uh, nowadays. Um, but this being the second time now that I've almost had a situation where I'm like, huh, almost didn't make it. Um, and this one being just out of the blue, not by like, you know, a slow process for, for health. This was just like a flip of the switch. The, the engine decided it didn't want to work properly. And uh, I think it enabled me to look at myself and say, well, look, if if I could really just go at any given moment like this, why not say yes to more things, have new experiences, go to new restaurants, you know, hang out with people I wouldn't have otherwise have hung out with, and just 
live life. So I think, uh, I think if anything, I gained greater perspective from this experience by being more willing to live in the moment as opposed to just trying to plan for the future. Mm, that's an amazing response. Do you have, would you say if, to our listeners, any advice or you know, suggestions for anybody that just on a normal day, boom, like catastrophe happens, you know, or something that is just completely out from left field, you know, something like any, any suggestions or advice on how a, the average Joe can handle? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this, this not only from my aviation background, but going into my first responder background as a firefighter EMT, yeah. um, you see this all the time, even with uh, car accidents or, you know, medical emergencies, the drop of a hat, uh, your life can change. And if you find yourself in an emergency situation, um, typically you want to do what you can to remove yourself uh, from that situation as quickly as possible. Um, trust your gut. Uh, usually if uh, you feel something's off, don't hesitate, you know, raise a concern, tell someone, hey, I feel, you know, this is out of place or this doesn't look right or that doesn't look right. Because um, uh, specifically to aviation now, one of the things one of the examiners I used to fly with, uh, used to teach is the Swiss cheese model. He's like, so imagine you have a stack of pieces of Swiss cheese. If you have them all arranged randomly, it's just a solid surface. You know, you're, nothing's going to get through. But let's say circumstances line up and you happen to be like fatigued or tired and you miss something. Guess what? That hole in the Swiss cheese, that first layer, something just went through. And if something else goes wrong and, you know, you miss a checklist item, so, hey, you're fatigued, you missed something, then you stop, you missed something on your checklist, that's a second layer, now you have another hole that lined up. If you have enough holes that line up through your process, through your day, that's how errors happen, when there's a series of factors that go wrong. Mm -hmm. There's never one singular thing that's going to lead to an emergency happening or a bad situation happening. Wow. And it's the same thing in your everyday life. Let's say you're driving your car. You're on the LIE. Yeah, you're, you know, it's rush hour, you're driving along, you're matching the speed of traffic, but are you paying attention? Are you zoned out listening to the radio? Are you giving enough distance to the car in front of you to give yourself an out in case something happened? It's like all of these additional factors that come into play before an actual issue arises. Wow. So you would say that's the secret sauce. That's the secret sauce. That's the secret sauce. <laughs> that's the secret sauce. <laughs> so so the, uh, the examiner's name, because he, he's given these talks all over. Yeah. Adam Rosenberg, he's a great guy. He's a pilot for American Airlines. He's given talks uh, w through the FAA's WINGS program. Uh, he's given talks, you know, as on his own. Um, that's, that's something I learned from him, the Swiss cheese model. Wow. And that is, that is uh, one of the best I, anal analogies I've ever heard was, you know, it's just always a series of factors that lead to a failure as opposed to just one singular thing that causes a failure. Yeah, to it's almost like, you know, controlling mm -hmm. things in your environment that you're able to control. Controlling risks and externalities. Because yeah. when things do not go the way you plan, it's like at least you're able to have had controlled all the things that you normally controlled, right? Yep. So, wow. And then when you have control, hopefully things kind of lined up and, you know, the hole, you don't fall through that hole, yep. right? At least, hopefully there's <laughs> at least one layer that'll catch you before right. they all line up. Yeah. 
So do you still fly? So uh, I flew uh, regularly after that all the way until COVID happened. And then once COVID happened, uh, people kind of took a break from flight school for a little bit. That's when I got into uh, security. And uh, right now I'm actually the, uh, the district supervisor for Elmont. So I have guys at all the different locations and I just kind of make sure they're doing what they need to do. I am actually scheduled to go up in about a week and a half um, for my BFR. So in aviation, there is something called a biennial flight review you must do every two years. So my BFR is about to expire. So I'm gonna go up, get that done. And then uh, if the flight schools, uh, I've heard from uh, Long Island Aviators, which is the place I was at after Nassau Flyers, um, they, they're looking for guys during the week. I'm like, well, you know, I'm doing Elmont during the week, but on the weekends, if you need instructors, you let me know and I'm more than happy to fill in. Wow, mm -hmm. so after, you know, after this extreme situation, thank, thank heaven you walked out of this without any injuries, right? <laughs> and still continue to fly. That's, that's amazing. So I, uh, I had my next lesson the day afterwards. Uh, so I was wow. right up the next day with another set of students and we were, you know, flying right afterwards. And uh, aviation is a perishable skill. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where you do want to stay regularly active. You don't want to let your uh, skills get rusty. You don't want to let your uh, you don't want to let your desire to get in the airplane be affected by the fact that you had you know this emergency happen or this uh, this bad experience happen. Because if you start to get inside your own head like that, then then you're gonna get into the situation where it's like well. Maybe I don't want to fly. Maybe I don't want to do this. So uh, I'm of the school of thought where if something happens, like let's say you get into a car crash or let's say anything happens, you know, get right back behind the wheel and keep going. Don't, don't sit there and dwell on it because that, that leads to self-doubt. Mm. And then I guess not living, right? Yeah, not, not living. Not living the way you want to live. Mm -hmm. right? Wow. I, my brother, I'm a different <laughs> brother. I, I don't know how else to end it. You know, the podcast to end it like that, you know? Like, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a pleasure. I'm glad yeah. to have been here and I'm glad to have shared that with your, uh, with your viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I, I appreciate, you know, all that you've shared with our viewers. I really, you know, hope our, our viewers can gain a lot of, especially our pilots here. Um, and yeah, if you, if you need to look for, for Brandon, Brandon is a super nice guy. He's up in Port Washington. <laughs> he is. You're, you're dating somebody right now, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're figuring it out. Oh, we're figuring it out. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, brother. I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Jing's Mortgage Team. Jing's Mortgage Team is a team of real estate and mortgage professionals whose mission is to help anyone with their real estate needs. If you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, refinance your home, have credit issues, or in need of an investment loan, we can definitely help you. If you're looking for a real estate agent, we know the best of the best real estate agents. Visit the link below for more information.